Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Hey, I want to do a part two to this morning's message where um, I was talking this morning about building your boldness into your life, how to build boldness, how to have confidence in your life. And uh, this morning I talked about two things about the character of God and one, things, one, one of the things about the promises of God. And the character of God I focused on was about his mercy and his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. And then it goes on to say, great is your faithfulness. Because God's mercy is new every morning, that means that we can have hope no matter how badly we stuff up. And because God is faithful, even when we are unfaithful, he's always true to himself He's always reliable. We can count on him. And his promise is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. One of the most important promises, I believe, in the entire Bible is the promise of God's presence. God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. What an amazing promise. And then Jesus, right at the end of Matthew 28, 20, the last words of Jesus, lo, Behold, take a look, see. That's what that word low means. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. The promise of his presence right until the very end. Jesus walks through everything that we go through with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Isn't that good news? So this morning we talked about having confidence in God, having confidence in his mercy, confidence in his faithfulness, confidence in his promise that he's with us to the end of the age. Tonight I want to focus more uh, about, about us and how we can build confidence in ourselves through knowing a few things. And the first thing I want to say is in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says you can have confidence in some things that are actually quite unhelpful. And when he writes to the Philippine church, he says this in chapter 3 and verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm also. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what, if anyone had a right to boast about their history and their achievements, it would be me. But he says, I choose to live a life where I don't rely on those things. And then he lists a whole group of things. He says, you know, I don't rely on the fact that I have a Jewish heritage. I don't rely on that. I was born a Jew. I was born of the stock of Benjamin. And you know, after the captivity, the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, not many people knew where they came from. But the first king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. So it was a very prideful thing. And for people who have confidence in the flesh, what we're really talking about is people who are proud of their achievements and what they think they have. And Paul says, this is the wrong kind of confidence to develop in your life. And so he says, I, I, I'm not going to take pride. I'm not going to be confident in my Jewish heritage. He said, I'm not going to be confident in my Pharisaical learning and ability there. And, you know, in life, you can put confidence in the wrong things. And, and putting confidence in the wrong thing means that one day that could fail you. And, and, you know, so many times we put confidence in things because we are motivated out of fear. 
You know, there's a young man I've been working with. He's, he's got a tremendous gift on his life, and he works for, for us in our church. He's been working for us for a while, but there's just a number of buttons that are so deeply programmed into him that he's not able to break through right now. And I had to sit down with him, and I, I said, I was talking to him, let's call him, I don't know, let's call him uh, David. And I said, David, you know, there's some things about your life that are so deeply programmed, they're hijacking the things God wants to do. And let me give you an example. He, he's failed his driving test five times. Because every time he goes for a driving test, he gets into a state of complete panic. And the fifth time, he didn't even take his test. He was driving to his test. He broke out into a cold sweat. He had a panic attack and he just drove home. Didn't even go to the test. And I said, look, you're a young man in your early 20s. You cannot let that have victory over you. You've got to break through that. And he's got this deep-rooted fear of failure. And so when he's under the spotlight, just something takes over. And you see, sometimes we, we compensate for fear of failure by achievement. Now, there's nothing wrong with achievement. Achievement is good in life. But if your achievement is a compensation for your fear of failure, then you'll constantly be driven to achieve more. And so Paul says, that, he says, I was like this. I had confidence in the flesh. It was all about achievement. I was born into the right tribe. I was born into the right culture. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. I was a Pharisee. Concerning the law, I was blameless. He says, all these things are things I could have had confidence in, and I did. I was proud of those things, but it never brought me close to God. It never strengthened my relationship with him. And you know, you and I, we can have confidence in the wrong thing. There's nothing wrong with being clever. And there's nothing wrong with being qualified. But if your confidence is in those things, then maybe you're compensating for something. You know, when I was, I was studying civil engineering, I think I've told you my story at Manchester University. It's a very prestigious university for, for civil engineering in the UK. And nine months before finishing my degree, the Lord told me to leave and to go to Bible college. How many of you know, if you've got parents that don't know Jesus, that doesn't go over well? And that was a massive challenge in my life. I was the first person in our family to go to university. In fact, I was the first person in our school to go to university. It was, a, it was seen as an amazing achievement. And people said, you're throwing it all away. And I said, well, I quoted Jim Elliott, who wrote this at the age of 28. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to keep that which he cannot lose. And I saw it as an investment. I didn't see it as throwing away something. God was breaking not only something in me, but something in my family. Do you get this? Pride, confidence in the wrong things. You know, and then when God finally dealt with that in my life, you know, at the age of 22, I left university. At the age of 38, I went back to university. Why? Because after all those years, it, it wasn't an issue. My confidence was not in getting a degree. My confidence was in God who supplies my needs. And so Paul says here, you know, we've got to learn to be those who trust in Christ Jesus, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in flesh. We worship God in the spirit. And so, you know, before I kind of get into my message tonight, my, my challenge to you and I is what are we putting confidence in? Because if you put confidence in the wrong thing, eventually it will fail you. And what are you going to do then? Uh, it talks in the Psalms about not putting confidence in princes or in man. 
You can, you know, he who trusts in man, according to Jeremiah 17, comes under a curse. If you, if you make your flesh, if you make the things in life that you, you think you're achieving, whether that's another person, whether that's a qualification, whether that's an income and a certain salary standard. You know, I, I, I meet people who just, they go through crises in life and they don't know quite how to handle it. And the reason they don't know how to handle it is their confidence is usually in the wrong thing. I told you my story about when I came out of leading a church, a successful church. You know, I became a swimming teacher for two years. I tell that to some people, they can't handle that. Well, you became a, that's very humbling, isn't it? I say, yeah. It's like working at McDonald's. But I know pastors who come out of ministry and they have a chip on their shoulder. It's like the world owes them a favor now. They've got a chip on their shoulder. Now somebody has to give me a ministry, give me a church. I have to have something. I'm owed something. You're owed nothing. You're God's servant. Get on with life. Hello? In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the people there. And uh, here's God's advice. Build houses, plant vineyards, get married. Get on with life. They were, they were, they were under judgment. They weren't going to be in the land of Israel. God says, well, don't stop living. You don't stop living just because you go through a crisis. You get on with life. You, you find the basics once again. You get back to basics. And if it means humbling yourself and getting something that's really humble, just go do it. Just go do it. You know, well, I'm just too proud to do that. I'm a minister or I'm this or I'm qualified. I have a degree. I have this. And don't you know who I am? It's like, oh my goodness. Didn't realize you were so important. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we sort of, we think of ourselves in a very unhealthy way. You know, the Bible says that we're servants. Jesus comes amongst us, as one, he says, I'm among you as one who serves. In Philippians chapter 2, it says he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself, became of no reputation. I think sometimes we're just trying to protect our reputations too much. Jesus didn't try and protect his reputation. He became of no reputation. He was called a friend of publicans and sinners. He says, John the Baptist comes eating and drinking. You say, he's got a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. You say, behold, a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners. You can't win with people who judge by outward appearances. You cannot win with those people. It doesn't matter what you do. John the Baptist didn't win. Jesus didn't win. But wisdom is justified of her children. We've got to learn to live with our confidence in God. Not in the flesh, not in, think, not in achievement, not in personality, not in reputation, not in qualification, not in salary, not in achievement, not in things that you own. All those things can go. If your confidence in those things, when, you, when they go, you'll think your identity has gone. You'll wonder, who am I? So Paul says we're not like that. We, we are those who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. We have no confidence in the flesh. So here's the first point I want to make for my message tonight. Number one, know who you are in God. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. In Ephesians 4.7 it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, you've got to know what is the grace on your life. 
When you know what the grace on your life is, you can be a confident person because you're not trying to be who you're not. The worst thing is trying to be somebody God hasn't made you to be. And it's, it's really interesting to me because you would think the only way to become unique is not to copy anybody else. But the opposite is true. Now, this is going to sound really counterintuitive for a moment. So just stay with me for a second here. The only way to find your authentic self is to copy someone else for a while. Now, if you don't believe me, wait till you have children. Because when children start to get older, as they are what psychologists called individuating, in other words, they're starting to discover who they are, in the process of individuating, what they do is they want to be mummy and they want to be daddy and they usually dress up in their clothes. Have you ever, have you ever spotted that? You ever had, have you ever done that yourself when you were little? I remember my brother and I did that, dressing up in our dad's clothes. He had one suit, I had another. They were way too big for both of us. But we wanted to be him. Now, we weren't him, but we wanted to be him. We aspired to be him. There was something about that. And in what happens is, as you copy, and as you uh, are, um, in, a, in a sense, trying to take from someone else, in the journey of doing that, you actually discover who you are because it's like wearing Saul's armor. You realize, this doesn't really fit. This isn't really me. You see, they put it on David and he tried it on. But he said, you know what? This doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. This isn't me. And I I say to people, you know, listen, there's nothing wrong with copying someone else. Now, there's a whole group of people out there that say, oh, you should never do that. Well, life teaches you to do that. That's exactly what children do. That's how they learn. But then they come to a, a, a phase in life where they definitely don't want to wear your clothes. They definitely don't want your makeup. They definitely don't want to look like you. They want to be nothing like you. Now they're really coming to that individuating phase because they're discovering who they are. So Paul says to the Corinthian church, I want you to imitate me. Copy me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so what we discover is, as we're copying, actually what we do is we start to imitate faith. We start to imitate the important things and then we let go of the other things that are not truly us. But all of this is rooted in the fact that each of us is given grace. Listen, one of the reasons that I have confidence to stand here and speak is because I know the grace that's on my life. I know the grace that's on my life. One of the reasons I'm in Christ church and not someone else's, I know the grace that's on me that allows me to do what is needed to be done in this context. So I have confidence. The confidence is in God, but it's in the grace of God that is operating in me. And every single one of you has been given a grace, a gift of grace. There is a zone that God wants you to function in. And you don't have to compete with somebody else. And if you feel like you have been competing, I hope one day you'll mature enough to say, you know what, I'm fed up with this game. I fed up with this game of competing. I think I need to start to be me. You know, when, you, when you're starting off preaching, it's so interesting. You know, in the early days when I was graduating from Bible college, some of my friends who were really, really good at imitating, some of, one of my friends could really preach like Billy Graham. 
he was brilliant. He could impersonate Billy Graham. I had other friends who could impersonate other people. They just could go there. And it was like, it was awesome listening to them. And they were copying. But after a while, they dropped the imitation, but they kept preaching powerfully. Because they eventually discovered what was their grace. What was the way God wanted them to communicate? Do you get that? We, we, and in that sense, we've got to mature. We've got to come to a place where we say, what's the grace on your life? What is the sweet spot where when you're doing that thing, you are in your happy place? You, it brings a smile to your face. You're thinking, yeah, this is what it is. Now, on the journey to getting there, sometimes you have to do 100 things you don't really like. That, that's about building character. That's about building servanthood. That's about willing to do anything to make it work. We've got to have that kind of go-to attitude. That's really important in any church. You can't build a church without a group of people who've got that attitude. But once you've got that attitude, you'll discover in time that there's a grace on your life. And when you know what that grace is, that's your primary focus. That's where you do it. Now, when I go into a church especially if it's not a church that I'm the senior leader of and I'm just serving that church, my question to myself is not what's good for me in this context, but what's good for them? How can I serve them? And is my grace sufficient to bring real shift and uh, real um, uh, a, a step forward in faith for this congregation? Do you get that? But I can only do that if I'm willing to just, in a sense, step back from myself and what satisfies me and ask God, what will satisfy you in this context? Do you get that? So here's that, that first point. You've got to know who you are in God. You know, in, in uh, John chapter 13, it's speaking of Jesus. And he goes into that upper room with his disciples and it says this, knowing that he'd come from God and knowing that he was going back to God, he took off his garment and girded himself with a towel and began to wash their feet. Why could Jesus wash feet? Because he knew who he was. Knowing that he'd come from God, knowing that he was going back to God. The more secure you are in who you are in God, the easier it is to serve and do what others don't want to do. Because you're not protecting anything. You know who you are. Here's the second thing that's really helped me, and it'll help you. It'll build this sense of boldness into your life. It will develop confidence. Learn to live and to keep a clear conscience. This has really kept me over the years. Do you know, the conscience is a very sensitive instrument because the conscience cannot be talked down. The conscience does not work in the human spirit on a rational level. In other words, you can't argue with a conscience. A conscience is very black and white. A conscience is like the prophetic voice in your head. And the conscience will either say to you, that's okay, or you blew it, you stuffed it, you're wrong. It's black, it's white, it's yes, it's no, it's on, it's off, it's in, it's out, it's good, it's bad. It's as clear as that. It is not 50 shades of grey. And when your conscience kicks in, you either know what you did was right or, what it, or it was wrong. It's as simple as that. And it's a sensitive instrument. 
And so when your conscience convicts you and tells you this is wrong, you have to deal with that conscience. You can't go into negotiation phase with your conscience. You can't say, yeah, I know that was wrong, but... You know, under these circumstances, with this particular issue, and your conscience will listen to every rational statement, excuse, and argument that you have, and look at you and say, wrong, (laughs) still wrong, 10 minutes later, wrong, and it will trouble you, it will bother you. Paul says, I strive to live with a conscience void of offence before God And before men. He says that before King Agrippa in the book of Acts. I strive, I make it my effort to live with a conscience void of offence before God and before men. I try to live with a clear heart. The Bible says this in 1 John. It says in 1 John 3, 20 and 21. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence towards God. Listen, if your heart's condemning you, it robs you of confidence. If your heart condemns you, it robs you of confidence. But if your heart does not condemn you, you can have confidence towards God. That's why the best thing to do is when your conscience tells you you are wrong, is agree. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. Agree with your adversary while you're in the way with him, lest he deliver to you to the judge and the judge to the prison officer and the prison officer takes you in the prison. You won't be leaving that prison till you pay your last penny. Agree with your adversary. If your conscience is against you and telling you you're guilty, that is your adversary in that moment. And agree with your adversary. Say, yeah, you're right, that was wrong. Now what do you do? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. You know what I've discovered about a lot of believers? We don't like calling sin, sin. We like calling it mistakes. Can I just say something? God doesn't forgive mistakes. He forgives sin. So call it what it is. Let me give you three words for for sin in, in, in the New Testament. The first word is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This word means missing the mark. It's like an arrow going for a target and it misses the bullseye. Falling short. You don't hit the target. You fall short of the target. That's one definition of sin. Here's another definition of sin. The trespass. There's the line. This side is good. This side is bad. You cross the line. A trespass. If somebody comes onto your property, they are trespassing. They cross the line. And so you can miss the mark or you can cross the line. And then there's this other word for sin, which is all about, it's difficult to define, iniquity. It's about having like a bent arrow. It's like, (coughs) it doesn't matter how straight you shoot, it will go off target. Not because you didn't aim at the target well enough, but because there's something intrinsically crooked about the arrow itself. And sometimes in us, there's something intrinsically crooked in the way we see and the way we act, and the way we think. And it's a heart thing, and we have to have it dealt with. But if we confess our sins, the word confess there, it's a Greek word made up of two words, homo logeo. You all know what homo is. The same. Yeah, that's where you get a homosexual, the same sex. Homo, the same. Logeo is where we get the Greek word logos, the word, to speak the same. So to confess 
is to literally say the same thing as. So in other words, if God says it's wrong, your conscience says it's wrong, you say it's wrong. You say the same thing. So if we confess our sins, if we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, here it is, he is faithful from this morning, true to his word, and just, he has the ability, he's not compromising his own righteousness when he does this, to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And you know what? The moment you do that, your conscience suddenly recalibrates and says, you're in the clear. You say, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. And as long as you keep it in darkness, as long as you hide it and you don't confess it, here's the thing. Your conscience will keep accusing you and you'll lose your confidence because you'll have this little accusing voice. You've got to put it right. You've got to put it right. You've got to put it right. You know, being a preacher and a pastor, it's, it's, in a way, it's a great, great job. In a way, it's a lousy job. I'll tell you why. Because whenever I had an argument with my wife, I knew that I had to put it right at least by Sunday. <laughs> you know, there's no other job in the world where you have to do that. You can be a grump, you can, you can hide your sin, you can be unrepentant as long as you want, unless you're a pastor. And then you're stuffed. Because you know, if you go up there on Sunday and you haven't dealt with your conscience, you haven't dealt with your issue, you're going to have no flow, you're going to have no anointing, you're going to have no blessing on your ministry, you are stuffed. <laughs> and it's like, it was almost like God, when he called me, he was like, I'm going to make sure you're always, you know, you always deal with your issues. Because I want you to preach with integrity. And it's like, oh God, you know. I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I've learned over the years I've been a Christian and a pastor is how to repent. I just know how to do it. I'm good at it. I even repent to my kids. I told you that story, didn't I, about Anna Maria, our daughter, the 12-year-old. I told you that story. You know, you just can't afford to live with a bad conscience. You can't afford to do it. If you confess, if you say the same thing as he is faithful and just to forgive, he won't hold it against you and he won't hold it over you. You got that? Now here's what I've discovered. Sometimes the confession has to be as wide as the transgression. In other words, if you do something wrong and it's just you on your own, then you just need to confess to God. But if you do something and it impacts a group of people, you need to say sorry to that group of people. And if you are an international minister on an international stage where you have an international voice and you do something, you probably need to do it internationally. The confession has to be as wide as the transgression. In other words, how many people are impacted by what you did? Then they're the people you need to say sorry to as well as to the Lord. Do you get that? But it's all about having a clear conscience. It's all about getting rid of the rubbish. When we have a clear conscience, here's what it says. We have confidence towards God. We know that he hears us. Here's the third thing that's really helped me in gaining confidence as a believer. Learn how to endure without losing heart. Learn how to endure. Here's what Hebrews 10, 35 and 36 says. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. This is why we need boldness and confidence in our lives, friends. 
confidence brings a reward. But listen to what it says here. For you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, when does the promise come? After you've done the will of God. Notice that the promise doesn't come before you do the will of God. It comes afterwards. Doesn't that suck? (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if you got it beforehand? But that's not how it works. God is looking for the obedience of faith before there's the fulfillment of promise. And the only thing that will carry you through is this thing called confidence. So the writer of Hebrews says, don't cast away, don't throw away your confidence. I'm amazed sometimes how many people quickly throw away their confidence. I remember there was a friend of mine he was in an argument with somebody and he says, I know I'm right. And this, this fellow looked at me and says, are you sure you're right? And he goes, oh, well, I thought I was. I said, you just threw away your confidence. You just cast away your confidence, man. You see, what, what the enemy wants to do is challenge us in such a way that we cast away our confidence. So he comes to Eve and he says, has God said? And she got all flustered. Oh, well, I don't know now. What did she do? She cast away her confidence. Hebrews says, hold fast to your confidence. Hold fast to your confidence because it's your confidence that will take you into your obedience. And your obedience will take you into your promise, the fulfillment of your promise. Do you get that? So so come on, let's endure, let's have this enduring confidence without losing heart, without giving up. Jesus said in in Luke 18 and verse 1, men ought always to pray and not lose heart, not give up. It it requires endurance sometimes. Galatians 6, 9 says this, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. The reaping, the harvest, always comes after the planting. There's a season of waiting in between. There's a season where you have to maintain your confidence and you do that through endurance. And as you endure, listen, some things in life are meant to be enjoyed and some things are meant to be endured. Yeah? British weather is meant to be endured. You got that? There's some foods when you eat as a kid that you endure it. Nobody loves broccoli. No, Brussels sprouts, they are a demonic. (laughs) Brussels sprouts, they smell. They make people do funny things. Pass wind and all stuff like that. It's just Brussels sprouts. But, but how many of you know green things are normally good for you? (laughs) Well, you know. Grasshoppers are green. We won't go there. But don't grow weary while doing good. There has to be an endurance. There has to be an embracing of something. And, and by endurance, I, I mean this ability to persevere despite the pain, despite the discomfort, despite the lack of breakthrough until God does breakthrough. Do you get that? Confidence enables you to do that. Here's the, here's the fourth and last thing I want to say tonight, if we can have a keyboard up here, please. It's, <clears throat> it says this in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The fourth point I want to make tonight is this. Learn to trust God for outcomes. 
Learn to trust God for outcomes. I'm amazed at the Apostle Paul when he wrote these words. I'm confident that he who begun a good work in you is going to be able to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He had amazing confidence in the Holy Spirit in people to bring them to their destiny. I'm astonished. You know, sometimes we look at people and we look at their failures, we look at their shortcomings, we look at the things about their life that they still need to get right. And we think, we evaluate based on what we see and based on what we know. And we say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure it's going to work with them. But what we have to do in those moments is learn to make the investment but trust God for the outcome. You see, Jesus made an investment into Judas in the same way he did with John and Matthew and Peter and Thomas and all the others. He made the same investment. He didn't get the same outcome. We've got to learn to trust God for the outcomes. But we make the investments. We make the down payments. We do the inputs, but God is responsible for the outputs. And I found that if I don't try and control the things that God is responsible for, I'm a lot happier. I can challenge people to take steps of faith. I can challenge people to take steps of obedience. I can challenge people to forgive, but I have to trust God for the outcomes. You know what? In my early days of being a pastor, in my 30s, I thought it was my responsibility to stay with somebody till I had persuaded them to do the right thing. I would spend hours with a person. I would argue with them. I would have scriptures. And you know me, I'm good at scripture. I could throw 50 scriptures at people. And you know what? It never produced the right kind of outcomes that I was looking for. Sometimes I bullied people into obedience. And then I read this scripture and I said, Lord, what's going wrong? And God said, I can't bless what you're doing because your attitude is wrong when you go. You're there telling people what they should be doing, but you come with a judgmental attitude. You don't come to serve them. It's you that's wrong. I said, yeah, but they're wrong. He says, I know they're wrong, but your attitude is wrong and I won't bless it. And it took me some years. And then I read this passage in 2 Timothy 2. The servant of the Lord must not be argumentative, but gentle, meek, apt to teach, instructing those who are in opposition If perhaps God will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who've been taken captive by him to do his will. And I read that passage of Scripture and the Holy Spirit said to me, there are three things at play here. There is God who desires to grant repentance to this person, a gift of repentance to their heart so that they can recover themselves from the snare of the devil. And then over here, there is the enemy who's trapped them and blinded them and he has ensnared them. And right in the middle is you, the servant of the Lord. You're my instrument and I will only grant repentance if you come with a humble attitude, if you are meek and gentle and you're apt to teach and you instruct them gently and it totally transformed my 
approach. And I remember having to deal with a guy who was an amazing worship leader, a brilliant guy, and he committed adultery with a girl in the worship team. And he had this adulterous affair for months. It went on. And he shook the church and it shook his marriage. And he had three grown-up sons. It shook his sons. I remember him sitting and and I was having coffee with him and he said, well, I'm going to go off with this girl. I'm leaving my wife. And I said, if you do that, you'll not only destroy your marriage, I believe you will destroy the faith of your sons and you'll destroy the church. And I said, I'm appealing to you not to do that. He said, Peter, you don't understand. I've been given a second chance. I've fallen in love with a girl who loves me. I found something that's really precious. I said, bro, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, you've been ensnared. I said, I don't think it's going to work out. I said, if you do this thing, you force my hand. I'm going to have to stand in front of a church and tell them what you've done. I'm going to have to go to your family. I don't want to do that. I said, don't don't make me do that. Please make a different choice. He said, I've made up my mind and nothing you can say can change my mind. I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a week to think about it. He goes, I don't need a week. There's another word in there. I don't need a week. I said, I'm going to give you a week. I won't do anything for a week. No matter what you do, I'm going to wait seven days. People over the years have said to me, why did you say that to him? And I said, because I was counting on the Holy Spirit doing on day two, three, four, five, and six, what I couldn't do. You know, and sometimes what we do is we confront people and say, you better change. You better change now. You better do it now. We get this, what we call righteous indignation. That's usually our flesh. I said to him, I'm just going to go away and pray. Day two, nothing happened. Day three, nothing happened. Day four, he rang me up and he was in tears. He said, okay. He said, God's been speaking to me. He's changed my heart. tell you what, I've seen that repeated over and over again with people. Because I cannot change anybody and neither can you. You can only ever invite a person to change. You can never make them change. If you don't believe that, wait till you get married. And if you don't believe it then, wait till you have kids. If you don't believe it then, wait till they grow up make another person change but you can invite them to change and you can be gentle and you can speak the truth gently and in order to do that you cannot even come to the meeting till you've dealt with your own anger and your own disappointment you have to go before the throne of grace and say God I've got an important meeting but right now murder is in my heart I want to kill him I've thought of 50 different ways of doing it and getting away with it because I'm intelligent But can you deal with my heart first before I go to this meeting, before I met with this worship leader? I had to deal with my disappointment. I had to deal with my anger. I had to say, God, these things are alive in me and they're very, very real. I actually would like to land one on him. 
because he's put me in the position where I'm having to deal with his crapola. To say it politely. And I had to come with a spirit of gentleness and meekness where I genuinely wanted the Holy Spirit to touch him. You see, there's the enemy over here and there's God over here and you're right in the middle. What are you going to be like? Well, I wanted to have confidence, not in Peter Prothero changing this person, but in the Holy Spirit doing what only he can do, convicting and changing. And that meant I had to get low. I had to get right down there. I had to say, God, I let go of my right to be angry. I am angry, but I'm letting go of that right to be angry. I'm disappointed. I'm letting go of my right to be disappointed. I, let, I transfer my rights to you right now. Because if I, hadn't, if I don't do this, I can't be used by you. The word meekness literally means a transfer of rights. Jesus was meek and lowly of heart. He transferred all of his rights to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. And I want to tell you that that was an intelligent, meaningful choice that he made. It wasn't a passive surrender to circumstances. It was an active surrender in faith. Trust God for outcomes. Trust God for people. The Holy Spirit is just better than you think at changing people. He's just better than you think. I've learned over the years, people sometimes argue with me. They get all blustery with me. I say, look, I'm not going to argue with you on that. I've made my point. I've made my point. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to leave it with you now. You think leaving it with me is going to change me? Well, yeah, actually I do. I do, because you know what I've got on my side? trusting you, I'm trusting the Spirit of God in you. I'm confident, Paul says. He who began a good work in you is going to complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Learn to trust God for the outcomes in your life. I've had to do that with my kids. I've had to do that in my marriage. I've had to do that in my relationships as a pastor, employing people with people. I've had to I've had to let go of my need to constantly fight and win. Sometimes the best thing you can do is fight and lose and let God win. Do you get that? See, when I was growing up, I had to win. I had to win the argument. I had to have the last word. But I've learned, where did that get me? That didn't change anything or anybody. And it didn't make people want to talk to me either. Let's trust in our Father who's able to bring people to where they need to be. If we are gentle and we have the right spirit and the right attitude. Would you stand to your feet? I want to pray for you. Especially want to thank our guests who are here for the very first time. I hope you enjoy the little chocolate we put in there. There's a little card if you fill it in, but please come to the VIP tent. Some of our team would love to talk to you, hear your story, hear a little bit about your journey and to see if as a church we can serve you as any way, in any, in any way. But one of the things we love to do in Equippers is we always give people an opportunity 
to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Saviour. Now, I don't know each journey here today. I, I don't know each person's trials. I don't know every single thing you've gone through. But I know this, that there is a Father in heaven who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus. And the Bible says whoever believes in Him doesn't have to perish, but can have everlasting life. Jesus did, was not sent into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If you're here tonight and you feel like, oh, I've been listening to that man tonight, but somehow God's been speaking to my heart. I know I need Him. I need His grace. I need His forgiveness. I need His love in my life. I need His restoration power. Just while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to that Jesus. And all I want you to do is a very simple act. We're going to pray a little bit later, but a very, very simple act. And it's like an act of faith. It's, it's like putting your confidence in God tonight. All I want you to do is lift your hand up high. Let me see it. Let me acknowledge it. And then put it down again. And by lifting your hand up, you're saying yes to Jesus. Yes to a new beginning. Yes to new life. Yes to having Him direct your world from now on. If that's you tonight, just lift your hand up right now in Jesus' name. Say, yes, Peter, that's me. Lift it and hold it up high. Let me see it. And then just put it, put it down again straight away when I acknowledge it. You're saying yes to Jesus. He loved you. He gave himself for you. So you wouldn't have to live with shame. You wouldn't have to live with guilt. You wouldn't have to live with the failures of the past. But you could have a brand new beginning. If you know you need that, lift it up, lift it up high. And let me see it. Father, I thank you for every person here tonight. Lord, for everybody who's on this journey and for people whose world has been rocked, for people whose world is under fire, for people whose world is facing new challenges and new temptations and new things are coming in. I thank you that you're encouraging us tonight not to cast away our confidence. I, I pray tonight, Spirit of God, that you would take, take us on a journey where we would all begin to fully understand the grace that you've deposited in every single one of us. My prayer is that we would learn how to minister out of that sweet spot of who you've called us to be. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would be, that your hand would be on us as you lead us and as you guide us. I'm asking, Spirit of God, that you would be there and that every person's conscience who's pricked by you, God, that there would be a speedy agreement so that they can be set free pursue with a clear conscience what you've called them to. I pray that we become an enduring people and I pray that we become a people who learn how to trust you for the outcomes of life and of other people. God, we declare to you tonight, we need you. We have no confidence in the flesh, but our confidence is in you. Create in us a boldness, a boldness to speak about you, a boldness to share you, a boldness to live for you a boldness to put things right when things go wrong and, a, and an understanding that we don't have to keep looking over our shoulder, but we can look ahead. And I thank You, God, that You've given us a Saviour who's overcome death, who's overcome the power of sin, who's overcome the power of the enemy. And that Saviour is here tonight to bless us, to lead us, to guide us. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.